As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, teach us good judgment and knowledge, for we believe in your commandments. You are good and you do good, so we ask you would teach us your statutes so that we may learn to keep your precepts with our whole hearts, delight in your law, and learn your will in Christ. Hear us, Father, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We want to consider this portion of God's word in connection with our consideration of the Eighth Commandment together. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, you can find that in many of our pew Bibles on page 1265. Um, 1 Timothy is between 2 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy, uh, towards the end of the New Testament. We want to consider together verses 6 through 10 as they relate to how to think about our earthly possessions. But to get a sense of the context of our text, we'll begin our reading at the second part of verse uh, 2 of chapter 6. So 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 2, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, well, we've been considering, if you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series sort of through the Ten Commandments, and we spent a long time, maybe it didn't feel so long to you, it felt kind of long to me at times, uh, to go through the Song of Solomon as kind of an extended uh, contemplation of the Seventh Commandment. And so we want to take up our consideration and keep moving through the Ten Commandments as we've been doing, and we've come to the Eighth Commandment, uh, Thou shalt not steal, um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. And this, I think, is a helpful kind of counterbalance to some of the things we've been doing in Mark, because this comes and reminds us that God is concerned about this life, and God is concerned about the material possessions that he has given us in this world. In Mark's gospel, especially recently in the mornings, we've been so focused on the call that God has of, of the spiritual life and one as self-denial and cross-bearing and following the Lord and doing those things. And it could leave somebody with the impression that we are so focused on the life to come and the spiritual things that we don't think at all about this life or the things of this life. Um, that we're only to think about the future life. We're only to think about heavenly things as if that's all that God is concerned about. Uh, but we, we recognize that God, in fact, cares deeply about this world. 
He cares deeply about the things in this world. Uh, He cares about life here and now. He watches over our lives here and now. And so even though we are a people of God who are looking forward to that spiritual kingdom that's to come, the glory that's to come in our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, uh, the Lord has also given us this life and many blessings in this life. Uh, We never want to leave the impression as we talk about the realities of suffering and death in this life to give the impression that following the Lord is only to suffer. Um, It's important for us to understand about suffering so that when it comes, we can embrace it with the kind of patience and uh, hope that we can have in the face of it, but we don't live lives that are only sufferings. Uh, We live lives that in many ways are blessed by our God. Um, And and especially as Christians in America, we are blessed in many ways uh, that, that some of our brothers and sisters in other places and certainly in other times in history have not been as blessed and as prosperous a people as we have had the privilege of being. And to not recognize that as coming from the hand of our God, to not recognize that as something good that he has given his people would be to fail to recognize that every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights, uh, in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Our Lord does care about this life. He cares about the material possessions of this life. He cares for his people. He is not apathetic or uncaring towards this world, and neither ought we to be. So we don't want to be uh, always so forward-looking that we're of no present good in this world or to forget the many blessings that God has given us here and now. And so his word tells us many things that we need to know about how to live this life. And so we want to think about the good things that God has given to us and how we ought to treat the things that we've been given, the things that our neighbors have been given, and use God's word in this way to think about the Eighth Commandment and really to think about things that are of limited value in this world and to look at them in light of the things that have lasting value in this world. Um, And so that's kind of how we want to think about this commandment together. It's only two points, but I think we'll be okay. Um, Limited value and lasting value. That's how we want to think about the Eighth Commandment together. Um, we, We start with recognizing the value of the things that God has given to us and the things that God has given to others. Um, That's really where question 110 of the Heidelberg Catechism starts in talking about what the Eighth Commandment forbids. Uh, What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, which governing authorities punish, but in God's sight, theft also includes all evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. Um, One of the things that the Bible teaches clearly is the gifts that we've been given are from God to us to possess and use. Um, That's a very basic place to start, but it's important to recognize that. What we have, we've been given by God. What our neighbor has, has been given to him or to her by God. Uh, Those things belong to them. Those things that God gives us belong to us. Um, There are things that belong to them as things given to them by God. And because they lawfully possess them from the hand of God, it would be wrong for us to take them from them. Right? If, if we understand that everything comes to someone, anyone from God's hand, then to look at something that someone else has and to desire to take that from them would be to take something that God has given them. 
And so God's word is very clear about saying the things that I've given to others, you are not to take from them. Um, and he forbids all kinds of theft, right? Taking from people, we can, we can maybe divide it into stealing with your hands, first of all. Um, of course, outright theft and robbery are prohibited by this commandment. Um, the things that are illegal, we are not to do. But the commandment reminds us that God's word is not just talking about things that are illegal, right? That you can steal from someone not by doing something illegal, but by doing something immoral. Um, we can steal from people in all sorts of ways. And sometimes people kind of smile at it. I remember seeing a cartoon once where um, you know, the, there was a lady at a butcher's counter and the butcher's smiling at her and she's smiling at him and there's meat on the scale. And on the one side, the butcher has his thumb on the scale, pushing it down. And on the other side, the lady has her hand under the scale, pushing it up. And they're both smiling at each other and it looks very idyllic, but they're both trying to cheat one another, aren't they? And the commandment is reminding us, it's, it's not just talking about illegal things that the government punishes, but God doesn't want us doing immoral things that swindle our neighbor. Uh, somehow using inaccurate measurements or another, any other kind of fraudulent way of tricking them out of the things that are theirs, charging them excessive interest, all of those things are theft. They're ways of taking things that don't belong to us. And if we take something illegally from our neighbor, if we take something immorally from our neighbor, um, we've stolen from them. And so God, in that sense, doesn't want us stealing things with our hands. He also doesn't want us stealing in our hearts. Uh, the commandment reminds us it's not just the outward acts of theft that we do. Um, it always begins with an attitude towards material things in our hearts. Um, the commandment rightly goes on to say God forbids all greed, uh, setting our hearts on things that don't belong to us. Um, because stealing, we know, happens in the heart before it happens with the hands. Uh, you put your desire on something. All theft really begins with a kind of greed, um, covetous thoughts. We set our desires on the things that don't belong to us. And as, as Paul's writing to Timothy about how to order things and how ministry is to be pursued, he particularly says you have to be on your guard for people who have set their desires on riches. Um, throughout our text, there are so many references to disordered desires. Um, Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. Uh, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to many senseless and harmful desires. The love of money, it's through this craving. Those are all attitudes of the heart. Those are all disordered desires. And so the Lord is helpfully telling us, don't steal with your hands, don't steal with your hearts. And also the Eighth Commandment reminds us not to steal from ourselves. Now you might scratch your head and say, now how can I steal from myself? Right, boys and girls, you can't take a dollar out of your own pocket and put it in the other pocket and steal from yourself. So what do we mean by stealing from ourselves? Uh, well, the commandment goes on to say God forbids all pointless squandering of our gifts. Right, if he's given us gifts and we just waste them or squander them for no good reason, we are stealing from ourselves. We are wasting the things that God has given us as good gifts. We don't want to end up like the prodigal son, Right, who were told in Luke 15, 13, squandered his property in reckless living. Um, and why doesn't God want us to do that? Because he doesn't want us to find ourselves the way the prodigal son found himself. Because what happened after he stole from himself, after he squandered what he had in reckless living, 
We read in Luke 15, 14 to 16, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Uh, The Lord does not want us to steal from ourselves, lest we be in need. He's provided us the things he's given to us that we might not be in need. And we don't want to put ourselves in that position. One of the primary authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, helpfully defines when have we wasted the things that God has given to us. He says, well, we've crossed over into the realm of pointlessly squandering our goods when we spend beyond propriety and without necessity. I think that's a kind of helpful way of looking at it. When we go beyond what's proper and wise, and when we don't have any need to do it. Um, you know, there, there are times when you know, we spend money to fix our car and it's more than we would like to spend. Um, it's often more than we'd like to spend, but we know we need to or the car doesn't run and we can't get to where we need to go. But wasting it is when we spend when there's no really proper use for it and when we're spending beyond what's necessary to do so. And so this is a helpful way of thinking about the basic definitions of the law. Don't steal with your hands. Don't steal with your hearts. Don't steal from yourself because then we are wasting the gifts that God has given to us, and we have a God who is given generously. Um, that's another aspect of, of why it's so bad to do these things, because it, it takes away from the fact that we have a generous God who has given us generously the things that we need for this life. Um, and God uses that provision for this life as a way of picturing for us the things he gives us in the life to come. If you read through your Old Testament, you see over and over again, Israel had all kinds of laws touching on private property. Um, They had laws for their land and for their possessions and for how they were to conduct commerce and how they were to deal with losses that they incurred or that they caused someone else to incur. God was very concerned about their property, concerned about the things that he'd given them. And why? Because the way God gave to them told them something about their God. Uh, told them something about their God and ultimately were pictures for them of what kind of God they had and what kind of inheritance he meant to give his people. Um, When God sent them into Canaan, for example, gave them the land as a possession, that land that God was giving them that was an earthly possession was meant to teach them something about the spiritual gifts that God gives. Remember, they didn't go into Canaan, which was a land flowing with milk and honey, into an empty land. Uh, One of the ways that God showed his generosity to his people is to not only give them a land, but give them a land that was filled with things. Um, And God wanted them to be mindful of that as they went into the land. Uh, One example of that we can see in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord was not only giving them a land and saying, okay, now you go into this empty land and fill it up, but he was saying, you're actually going to go into land where the city's already built for you, 
and the house is already built for you, and the, refriger the refrigerator is already filled with food that I put there for you. This is not literal. It's the translation, right? The sense of it. Um, I'm going to give you the food. I'm going to give you the farms. You won't have to plant them. They'll have the cisterns. You won't need to dig them. This is the kind of land I'm giving to you. It's not an empty land. It's a filled land. And it's a picture of the generosity with which God gives things to his people. Uh, he was giving them a possession. And every good thing they received from him was a testimony to the kind of God he was. And he meant for that land to be a picture of their heavenly inheritance. They were meant to think about the material things he gave them and think about those things as an aid to help them think about the spiritual blessings he gives his people. That's why when the New Testament picks up the language of spiritual blessings, it often uses the same kinds of terms that the Old Testament used. Uh, the language of possessions. Right? Or Israel had received the promised land, literal Canaan, as an earthly possession, but God uses that to say, it was a reminder to you that you had a heavenly possession. That earthly inheritance was meant to stand as a picture to you of the heavenly inheritance that your God has given you. And that language of inheritance is used by New Testament authors, maybe famously for us by Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, Canaan was an inheritance, but it was an imperfect inheritance. Uh, it could spoil. It could be spoiled by famine or by foreign invaders as a consequence of covenant breaking. But what does Peter celebrate here? The inheritance that's kept in heaven for us is not like that imperfect earthly inheritance. It doesn't perish, and it doesn't fade, and it doesn't spoil, because God is keeping it in heaven for us. It's an inheritance that can't be lost, like the earthly Canaan could be lost for covenant breaking. And one of the great things Jesus, that God taught his people in that, in that picture of their earthly inheritance was that the, the best thing that they were being given by God was himself. Uh, that one of the greatest blessings of being part of the people of God was to be possessed and to possess God himself. Right? When the Levites were going into the promised land, they didn't get part of the land as their portion. You remember that? They didn't get a gift of land that was theirs. And why didn't they get a part of the land for their own? Because God said in Numbers 18.20 to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, <clears throat> neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Uh, you don't have land as your possession because I'm your possession. Um, I'm your portion. I'm your inheritance. And there too, when the New Testament picks up the language of the Old Testament and says, We are a royal priesthood. What is that communicating to us? We all have God as our possession. And he has possessed us for his own good pleasure. 
That's the glory of what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2.9, picking up that Old Testament language with all of that New Testament illumination. You are a, royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a privilege it is to be God's possession and to have God as our possession. Um, having that, what else do we really need ultimately? Um, like the psalmist says in Psalm 73, whom do I and how do I have it but you? And what does earth have that I desire besides you? If I have you, what else is there better to have? Uh, being possessed and possessing God. We have the Holy Spirit now as the down payment of that inheritance that will one day be ours, that the Lord Jesus Christ will give us when he comes again in glory. We are heirs of all things. And when we keep in mind that lasting value, that things have for us, it will help us to see rightly the limited value that the things of this world offer us. It helps us to recognize that whatever material possession we might have in this world is ultimately of limited value. And when we think of those things of the Lord that have lasting value, then that can help us to put this life in its proper perspective. To be a people who value the gifts that God has given but who value them correctly. Put the proper price tag on those things, recognizing they are wonderful gifts of God given to us out of his abundant generosity, but they are not everything. Uh, They don't have ultimate value. That's why in our passage, when Paul talks about the values that people put on things, He wants Timothy to understand and to be choosing and training up men that understand that there is the gain that this world has to offer and then there is the greater gain of what God offers his people. Uh, He warns them particularly about people who are too motivated by the things of this world, who are too entrapped by the things of this world and don't recognize the things that are of greater gain. And here, this has application beyond just ministry. It's particularly important for ministers, but it has application for all Christians. Um, The good things of this world are good things, uh, but there are greater things than the things of this material world. Uh, That's what Paul is trying to communicate when he says, you know, godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, There are people who try to use godliness as a means of gain because gain is their most important thing. And if godliness is a means of getting to gain, then they'll use godliness to get to gain. But Paul's trying to say, but there's a greater gain with godliness. If you use godliness to try to get earthly gain, you're missing the greater gain of the contentment that comes from godliness. Um, And why does Paul say we need to have a proper valuation? He says, because you have to understand the limited value of the things of this world. You brought nothing into this world. And you can take nothing of this world out of the world with you. Right? We, we said a few weeks ago, um, you know, caskets don't have cargo compartments. Uh, shrouds don't have pockets. You can't take anything with you. You didn't bring anything with you into this world. You can't take anything out of this world with you. The things of this world have limited value. There's a limited time when they are useful. 
The things of the Lord do not have a limited time that they are useful, and it behooves us to put the right value on the right things. Right? To make sure we're not setting our desires on things that pass away. And that's really what we need to do as Christians, have a proper balance in our lives. You know, we don't want to be so neglectful of this life that we think nothing about it, but we want to put it in its proper perspective. The same was true when we thought about the seventh commandment, right? Love and physical intimacy in marriage is a good thing. It's something that's been given by God. If you twist it like the culture does and make it everything or make it nothing, you, you diminish the value with which God has made it, and you lose sight of where the proper value lies. And the same is true when we come to the Eighth Commandment. If we too diminish the things that God has given, we don't properly appreciate the blessings from His hand. But if we make them ultimate things, then we'll set desires on those things that don't last. Um, and we'll find ourselves investing ourselves too much in, in things that don't deserve ultimate attention and cannot provide ultimate hope for our future. And surely it's the disordering of these kinds of values that we see leading to all kinds of the greed and excess in our culture and all, kinds, and all the kinds of poverty and want that we see in our culture. Um, values, good things being disordered. And Paul particularly exhorts us here not to fall into the trap that so many in the world fall into. Thinking that material things in this world are ultimate things. That the world's saying we have to always be pressing for riches and always be striving to have the latest and the greatest, the biggest and best, everything. Um, that's why I so appreciate, I've shared with you before, John Calvin's approach to the Christian life, reminding us that the Christian life is a pilgrimage. And what are pilgrims trying to do? We're trying to get from where we are to where we want to go. Right? It's a journey. You're trying to walk on the journey. And what you don't want on that journey is to carry anything that's not going to be helpful to you. You don't want anything to hinder the journey that we're on. Um, and Calvin helpfully says, you know, if the Christian life is a pilgrimage and you don't want anything to hinder you, that's how you should look at life. Is this going to hinder my seeking after the things of God? Is this going to hinder me trying to make my way to the celestial city? Is this helping me or is this hurting me? And I don't want my use of the things of this world to slow me down, uh, to set me aside. And Calvin, I think, helpfully says we're to use the blessings of this world in, only insofar as they assist our progress rather than hinder it. Um, and he says, you know, if we don't appreciate the blessings God has given, we can mess ourselves up in, in two extreme ways, either by our really extravagant living, becoming too attached to the things of this world, that instead of walking the paths to what we want to walk, we start sitting down and camping out in this world um, as if we're trying to make our home here. And so Calvin says, by extravagant living, you can hinder your Christian life so that you're not making any progress anymore. Interestingly, he also says you can hinder your Christian walk by undue austerity, by not recognizing that God has given good gifts and that those good gifts are to be enjoyed, that he gives them to, to make our lives sweet. Um, and if we treat the things of God as if we can't use them or we can't enjoy them or we can't make use of them, he said that actually will hinder our Christian lives as well. Um, we can think of undue austerity like being someone like Ebenezer Scrooge. Right? He has all kinds of money, but he never gets rid of any of it. 
Um, He doesn't enjoy any of it. He doesn't make anyone else's life easier with it. He's sitting on all this money, but it's not doing him any good. That's part of the thing he has to reckon with. I hope you've all heard a Christmas story. I'm not ruining it for you. Um, you still have time before Christmas. But, you know, that's sort of the story, right? It ruins his life. His life is miserable because he has money, but he doesn't spend it on himself. He doesn't spend it on any other people. He gets no joy from it. He gives no joy from it. That will also hinder our Christian lives. If we don't recognize that we have a good God, a generous God, who means to give us things so that we can enjoy them. And the things that he gives us are meant for our enjoyment. Right? Even as Peter is rebuking Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit over saying they sold something to give to the Lord when they tried to hold back a portion of it for themselves, Peter is talking about that principle as he rebukes them. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? The Lord gave you the land. He put you under no obligation to sell the land. Right? While it remained unsold, was it not your own? Um, And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Right? Peter's point is there God didn't ask you to sell the land. He gave you the land and you could have enjoyed it, and there would have been nothing wrong with enjoying it. And he gave it to you and you could have sold it. And the money you had, you could it was at your disposal. There was nothing wrong with that if you'd use that money as your own. But once you said it's the Lord's and then didn't give it to him, that's when you transgressed. But even in that rebuke, he's holding up the principle of the gifts that God's given, isn't he? He gave you the land, it wasn't it yours. And when you sold it, wasn't the money yours? Uh, God gave it to you. God, he's defending that proposition and showing where the sin lies. It wasn't in having the land, and it wasn't in having the money from selling the land. It was from lying to the Lord and to his people, wanting to be received by the congregation as if they'd given gifts like other Christians had, but really holding things back. Um, It's important that we really listen to what Paul's saying here. He's not even really saying that being rich is sinful or somehow wrong. You know, sometimes what Paul says here gets, gets shortened down to money is the root of all evil. As if somehow money itself is the problem. But we know that there have been godly saints who've been rich. Uh, Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea, rich men who are also godly men, who also set their sight on the kingdom. Paul does not say money is the root of all evil. What does he say? Love of money is the root of all evil. He warns against those who desire to be rich. And when he talks about those who desire to be rich, he's not just talking about what they want, he's talking about who they are. He's saying if you want to know who these people are at their core, they're those who desire to be rich. And of course, that's the last person you want in Christian ministry but it's not a good quality for any Christian to be motivated by a desire to be rich, a love of money, Um, because what are we to set our love on? Uh, What are we to have be the people who desire? We are to be the people who desire godliness, who set our desires first on the kingdom of God and on his righteousness, that those are to be the kind of people we are And so if we don't want to be the kind of people who either endanger our walk like the prodigal son in extravagant living or endanger our walk through undue austerity 
like Ebenezer Scrooge, then what kind of people should we be? Well, you'll be shocked to hear that we should be like Jesus. Write that down. We should be like Jesus. Because what is Jesus like? Jesus is extravagant in his love. He's extravagant in the love that he shows the world. It's that kind of extravagant love that is really spoken about in question 111 of the Catechism. After saying, what does the commandment forbid? It says, what does the commandment require? And it's really defining that kind of extravagant love that we are to have. That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. What does extravagant love do? It puts other people before me. It recognizes that I've been given goods to use. I've been given goods to enjoy. But my needs are not more important than other people's needs. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good. That I help in whatever way it's possible. Um, Whenever I'm able, I help. That's That's a kind of love that goes out to this world. That I treat others the way I would like them to treat me. Right? That's the golden rule that Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's another way of saying love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, put their desires ahead. That's how we show extravagant love for our neighbors. Um, putting their material needs on level with our own. We also show extravagant love in our own faithful labor, um, in doing our work, endeavoring not to be a burden to my neighbor. Um, that's one of the things that we, we do by our own work. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians four eleven to 12, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Uh, what is the lesson that Paul's teaching? Not that we can all achieve ultimate independence, you know, and, and just kind of live a great life. But what is he saying? We're to try to take our work seriously so that we, as best we can, don't put a burden on our neighbors. We don't want to unnecessarily burden our neighbors financially by the way we live. Um, and Paul actually goes on to say, you know, and you sometimes aren't just a financial burden when you're not laboring fruitfully, you can become a burden by becoming a busybody. Um, Paul goes on to say that bad things happen when we're idle and not doing our work. Um, he, he goes on to say to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's a, it's a nice turn of phrase, isn't it? If you're not busy with your work, you become a busy body. And that becomes burdensome to the community in another way. Um, don't burden them materially. Don't burden them by being busy bodies. Uh, doing your work is a way that you can serve others. You can show love to your neighbor by trying not to be a burden to them financially or in these other ways. Um, But our faithful labor also has another purpose for others, right? I can actually relieve burdens. 
Um, working, I work so that I won't be a burden, but actually working allows me to help others in their burden. Um, I work so that I may help others in their hardship. Um, we look to be, have the opportunity to help other people from what we earn for ourselves. Right? The, the classic verse from Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't be those who steal selfishly from others, but share selflessly with others. Put yourself in a position to be a help. Right? This is the kind of extravagant love that we are to have for the world and for one another. Uh, to seek to help, to seek to be a help. Not just be looking out for ourselves and our own bottom lines, but be looking out for others. Um, what is the goal when it comes to keeping the Eighth Commandment and doing positively what God calls us to do? I love how Ursinus summarized it. Give to those in need from right motives for the sake of godliness and charity with a generous heart. That's all so good, isn't it? Uh, give to those in need. Right? Assessing needs is an important part of trying to help. It's the hard thing about trying to help people. Um, is this person really in need, and I'm re am I really going to be helping them by giving them something? I remember talking recently to a Christian who was a recovered heroin addict, and the person told me, you know, when I was at my lowest, and there would be people who would give me money, but it was not helping me. When you gave me money at that point, you were only enabling me. It was not a help. And that's what we want to try to do, right, as we think about giving. Am I helping this person? Is this person in need and am I doing something that will help? Right? Give to those in need from right motives for the sake of godliness and charity. Right? There are times at Christmas when the bell ringer from the Salvation Army is out in front of the, the supermarket. I put something in there and I'm not sure I'm always motivated by the right motives and godliness and charity. Sometimes I just don't want to walk past the person without putting money in. As I'm kind of thinking, this is a bad look if I just walk by and don't do anything. Um, and so you put it in. And I'm not sure I get a whole lot of credit for that. Right? We should do the right motives that are godliness and charity, not, you know, don't want to be guilted in front of the bell ringer. Um, so we can even do things that are not motivated in the right way. But where are we trying to get these things flowing from? We want them to flow from a generous heart. Um, you know, almost always I've found in the, in the course of my ministry when I preach through the Eighth Commandment, someone will come up and ask me questions about you know, how should we relate to the homeless and think about some of these things. And I'm not sure there's any pat answer to how to relate these things. I think sometimes that's a, a wisdom issue. Am I going to be helping this person? Am I going to be hurting this person? But I hope that we're trying to maintain a heart that's generous because it can be easy to become hard-hearted. Um, it can be easy to become hard-hearted to people who are in need. Um, and some people even wear that as a badge of honor. If they don't work, let them not eat. Uh, that's true, but that's not the only truth, is it? Um, and we better be sure that even when we say that, there still is a generous heart in us. And we should be motivated by that, to have that own generosity in our hearts when we meditate on the generosity that was in God's heart when he looked at us and our need. Um, God did not look at us in our need and say, what a bunch of rats that don't deserve the help. What a bunch of sinners. What a bunch of enemies. Let them help themselves if they want to be helped. Um, but what did God do instead? 
He looked on us poor, miserable sinners in our need and looked at us with mercy and said, these poor people cannot help themselves. So I will do what they can't do for themselves. And his motive was only pity and mercy and grace and love. And out of the boundless generosity of his heart, he gave the most valuable thing he had, which was his son. And his son was willing to come into the world and give everything he had, body and soul, to save sinners. Anytime we're tempted to say, I don't think I can be generous to that person. Um, we better be thankful to God that he didn't look at us and say that because we were in desperate need. How thankful we should be that we have a God who has that kind of generosity and that kind of pity and mercy and love to reach out and meet the needs of those who are in the world. And we want to try as best we can to, to imitate our Lord in that way and show that kind of generous love in the world and to make sure that the things we're doing flow at, at its core from a heart that's generous and acts as if it's been dealt with as we've been dealt with by our God. To remember that when we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we were sinners, he gave his body and soul for us to redeem us on the cross. When he saw us in need, he gave. May we be the kind of people who see people in their need and give to them. Because when we do that, we can really multiply and prosper our neighbors in this world. When we put the right value on the things of this world, um, and, and from a position of godliness, seek to serve our neighbors, we can really multiply our wealth in this world and give generously and prosper those around us. I like how Ed Clowney put it, thinking about how we keep this commandment. He said, in the power of Christ and in his love, we can learn not only to refrain from stealing what belongs to others, but to multiply our treasure by clinging to Christ alone. Out of the bounty of that miraculous multiplication of our gifts and treasure, we can amply supply those whom Christ places in our path. Let us shower on those around us the treasure God has given us, not counting the cost, but looking to that treasure that is laid up in heaven for us, namely Christ himself. May God grant us the grace to be a people who seek first not the limited values of the things of this world, but of the lasting value of godliness, the greater gain that comes with godliness and contentment from our God, and then seeks to multiply our goods to prosper our neighbor, neighbors and relieve their burdens. May God sanctify us and grant us this grace by his spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for, once again, for your law and for how good it is and what a wonderful standard it teaches to us. We come to you confessing our sins as so often we do. If we don't steal from, from our neighbors with our hands, we certainly do in our hearts and we certainly waste the things that you've given to us and don't put them to the best use. And we pray, Lord, that you would create a generous heart in us that would want to reach out in love, to be a help to those who are around us. Give us wisdom to be those who help and don't hurt, but who always are acting out of right motives and godliness and charity to relieve the burdens of others. So Lord, we thank you that we have this privilege of glorifying your name by multiplying our neighbor's good in the world, using what you've given to us to bless others. 
We pray that we would seek to extend that wherever we are able, however we can, to glorify your name. Hear us and help us in these things. Forgive us our sins. We ask for we pray them all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.